the world that I want for my great, great, great kids isn't just one of regenerative agriculture and vertical farms and hyperloops. That's part of it. But part of it is a one where they exist in a society where a vast majority of the people feel safe, they feel seen, they feel heard, and they have meaning and purpose in their life. From the Jewish Funders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I'm Andres Pokoini. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and the Jewish community. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, we are speaking with Ari Wallach, a futurist and social system strategist. He is the founder and executive director of Long Path Labs, an initiative focused on bringing long-term thinking and coordinated behavior to the individual, organization, and societal realms in order to ensure humanity flourishes on an ecologically thriving planet Earth for our centuries to come. Ari is the author of Long Path, Becoming the Great Ancestors Our Future Needs. His TED Talk on Long Path has been viewed over two and a half million times and translated into 19 languages. He was also the founder and CEO of Synthesis Corp, a New York-based strategic innovation consultancy whose clients included CNN, Volkswagen, the UN Refugee Agency, and the U.S. State Department. Ari is also a featured speaker at the upcoming Jewish Funders Network International Conference in Phoenix, Arizona. In this conversation, we talked about why our society is so obsessed with the short term, and we made the case for thinking differently about the future. Ari and I discussed how Judaism was critical to develop his thinking and how we can develop tools and attitudes that will help us create a positive vision for the Jewish future and, of course, take the steps one needs to get there. Take a listen. Ari, I was walking around the Roman Forum in Rome, of course, and I'm listening to audiobooks. And the one that I start listening to is Long Path, your book. And then I say, here I am in a place that is 2,000 years old or more, perfectly preserved. Not perfectly, but you know what I mean? Like you can still figure out how those people lived and what did they build. And I mean, buildings are still standing. And I'm listening to a book about thinking long term. And I thought... You know, isn't there a problem in today's society that we seem to have lost that capacity for long-term thinking? And I think that's the subject of your book and much of your thinking, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, look, the our capacity to think about the future is very much kind of embedded in the, the hardware of the homo sapien brain. I mean, in many ways, what kind of separates us out from other species, even, even Neanderthals, really homo sapiens about 100, 150,000 years ago, started doing two things extremely well and different than any other species on the planet, which was one, we were 
able to start cooperating in a way that we hadn't seen in other other species. Yeah, you know, wolves and others will hunt in packs, but we were able to cooperate in a way that went beyond basically any other species, one. And two, we were able to do what, what scientists called prospection, think about the future. Now, those two run hand in hand, right? You, you think about what might happen when you go to hunt bigger game. You think of different future scenarios. You're no longer just reacting like a tiger will when something comes across its path, it runs after it attacks, it eats it. We yeah. had to think about different futures. So this capacity has been with us for a very long time, but due to many kind of external structural faults, if you will, in multiple different systems, we have lost that capacity at the macro level, right? As a society, right. I would say as, as a faith in many ways. Yeah. And, and at a micro level, we are also hyper overwhelmed and we have also kind of atrophied that muscle as well. So it's both a micro and a macro issue right now. And the reason I wrote the book Long Path is yeah. because we need to start doing more of it if we want to move forward successfully. I mean, Homo sapiens has really that capacity for prospect that actually neuroscientists believe that the capacity for memory and the capacity for imagining the future is one and the same, you know, and so it's it's very interesting from a Jewish perspective. We're going to be talking about it, I hope, in a, in, in a few minutes. But But we also, our brains also have the bias of the near. In other words, we are also hardwired to prioritize the most immediate danger or the most immediate opportunity to future uncertain rewards. And that was also a survival mechanism. So maybe what we're seeing is that second bias, you know, gone rogue and completely overtaking the long-term planning thing. hundred percent. So the, the limbic, which is often referred to incorrectly as kind of the lizard mind, but it's, it's not the limbic or the amygdala kind of at the base of our brain is what controls that rapid short-termistic thinking, right? If Andres and Ari are walking in the Serengeti 80,000 years ago, and a large animal jumps out from behind a tree, we should not be thinking long-term. We should immediately be reacting and running or doing whatever we have to do to survive. The issue becomes when that becomes your default way of making decisions. Right. So it's not about privileging one or the other. It's about kind of the nuance of when to use them. But we have fallen, especially at an individual level and a societal level, to just privileging that short-termistic way of thinking and acting. And incidentally, uh, I mean, I was just thinking uh, as you were speaking, like, it's not a surprise then that in a society that privileges that everything is called an existential threat because an existential threat sort of voids the long-term thinking and makes you very short-term and that benefits certain political or economic actors. A hundred percent. You know, if you think about a state of emergency at a governmental level, right, the state of emergency is a is a declaration in many ways that the amygdala is taking over that, you know, we're putting right. putting all prefrontal cortex ways of thinking long term and executive function aside. We have to immediately react. And, and to your point, uh, often in a political or socioeconomic context, that can benefit one group greatly because you kind of uh, submerge the ability for folks to actually step back and say, is this the right thing to do? No, it's an emergency. We have to do it. Right. Um, and by the, and again, going back to the brain and going back to Andres and Ari and the Serengeti, like there is a time and a place for that. Now, it, what I write about in the book, and I believe wholeheartedly is that we're, we're in this moment in human history that I call the intertidal between kind of what was and what will be. And what an intertidal really is, is, or you can think of it as an interregnum, 
it's yeah. this kind of space between kind of the narratives and the stories and institutions from one era and the next era. And in that moment, in an intertidal, what ends up happening is we kind of have a we have a collapse of what we call the official future of how tomorrow is going to happen. And we see that kind of all around us. And so what ends up happening is that we fall into, understandably, a kind of short-termistic way of thinking. We become very laser-focused, anxiety ramps, you know, anxiety is about the future, depression is about the past in general. So yeah. anxiety ramps up. And when wait, that wait, 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 depression, say that again. So anxiety is about the future? In general, when you're ha your anxious thoughts are usually about what will be happening about the sort future. of anticipatory future, negative anticipatory future. hundred percent thoughts. Yeah. And depression tends to usually be around what has happened in, in the past. These are kind of in general, right? When we talk to kind of neuroscientists and how kind of we have, we map this and look at this in the brain. And so when anxiety ramps up, because it does in these intertidal moments, because we don't know what the future is going to bring, we become more laser focused on the short term. We become reactive. It's understandable. We we need something to kind of grasp onto, yeah. to hold onto as the ship is kind of rolling back and forth. You know, anxiety and depression are clear postmodern conditions, right? Like meaning uh, people were melancholic in the past, like Aristotle wrote about melancholy and whatever, but you know, this mixture of anxiety and depression that we feel now in the in the 21st century seems to be unique to our time. And I'm wondering if it's not related to the overwhelming nature of reality today. In other words, the lack of capacity to think long term and the depression, anxiety and the like are linked to the fact that there's too many things going around. Things seem to be changing so fast that we just were paralyzed. That paralysis, you know, makes us react only to what's in front of us on the one hand, on the social level, on the personal level, it just brings us into that situation in which we get depressed because, and we get anxious at the same time. We get overwhelmed, right? We, the, yeah. the cortisol, uh, adrenaline, kind of basic neurotransmitters, epinephrine, all these things that are swirling around in our brain and in our gut for that matter, um, serotonin, which is, you know, the, yeah. all of these things we have to remember is the, the human body was not developed for the speed and velocity of the modern world. We just, we, you and I are meant to be kind of hanging out a little bit of hunting, <laughs> a little bit of grazing, some play right. down by the riverside, maybe, I don't know, let's go back 15,000 years ago. So, you know, a couple a million or two years of evolution up until 15,000 years ago, you and I might see, I don't know, 50 to a hundred people over yeah. the course of our entire lifetime. Now I see that in my subway car. Today. You see that we used to, when we lived on the Upper West Side, 96 and Broadway, I would see that I would see that many people in the first 50 seconds of hitting the street. And so, again, I'm not you know, there I won't go to Freud yet, but he wrote about in civilization is discontents. What happens yeah. to us? But what do we give up? Right. When we go into civilization, I don't want to give up civilization. But again, we have to realize that we weren't meant for this. There's more info. We will take in more information from our smartphones, you and I today, then several generations ago took it in their entire lifetime, right? right? And even pre-Gutenberg, think about that, right? Right, right, right. And right. so take that kind of overstimulation 
and then nest that into a highly disruptive moment, right? We can, we can cite an example from the past 30, 60 days of chat GPT, where all of a sudden everyone realizes that a good chunk of what they do in their day job can now be done faster, better, and smarter by a first version of kind of soft AI out of Silicon Valley. And I'm not saying it's, we don't have to go into it's coming for your jobs, but everyone implicitly feels like my sense of identity and purpose, especially in the kind of Protestant work ethic that is the West, all of a sudden it can be done better, faster, without having to take bathroom breaks 24 seven. And even if it's quote unquote, not coming for your job, you feel destabilized. We can extrapolate this to voters in the Midwest, all sorts of things. So to yeah. your point, this, this is what we're feeling. Uh, so, so, but it's interesting because it's not the first time in human history that we feel destabilized. Like we're here in, in uh, New York, right? New York was created in, in an era of destabilization, but, but the attitude was a different one. Like, you know, the Central Park was created in 1850 when the city, you know, reached Wall Street, you know, and yeah. they called it Central Park back then, like yeah. it, meaning they, they already foresaw that, you know, the urban fabric was going to get all the way up to Harlem and therefore the Central Park was going to central, even if it's miles from where the city ends. The uh, Erie Canal in, in 1824, when New York was a, a backwater town, you know, so what? What changed or what did they have that we don't, that they responded to upheaval in their midst with long-term thinking and we respond more with immediatism? Look, I think for having not been alive at that moment, but based on what I've read, (laughs) um, there was a sense that the future was about things getting better. It used to be Broadway, going back to Manhattan, was clogged with horse excrement, right? Because that's how they got around. And all of a sudden, you know, along came streetcars and steam and and you got all of that off the road. And everyone's like, oh my God, I'm not stepping in it every day. This is amazing. The future is amazing, you know? And technology gave us a sense, not just technology, the industrial revolution in general, even when terrible things happen, like the shirtwaist fire, like then all of a sudden we'd have new laws passed. It was a very, very kind of progressive era. And Now, when we think, you know, look, there was just a poll of kids under the age of 18 and they asked them, are you looking forward? Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? They didn't put a timeline on it. 79% said I'm pessimistic because back then it just seemed brighter for everyone. Right Now we have this kind of tidal wave of doomerism. Obviously the largest version of that is climate change. And if you look at all the media that is put out around the future, whether it's climate change or zombie movies right. or any, anything that anytime you ask anyone about the future, they're just glum, even in the, be it on the short term, because let's say of inflation right now, or even long term, you know, some of those stuff that Pew Research does, they did a poll. Do you, they asked boomers, do you think your kids will be better off than you were? The answer's always pretty much been yes. And for the first time, the answer was no. And so I think that the shift has been on many levels, people just see these massive problems. Now, you are right. Something earlier you said, when you're in this kind of laser fighter flight, everything feels existential. And I will and do push back on that and say, yes, there are a lot of existential threats, but in reality, there's no better time to be a homo sapien on planet Earth than in this year. Look, 
I wouldn't, you know, my daughter can't, it's funny. My daughter came into the room uh, two nights ago and she had a cut on her finger and, you know, we washed it out because we know about germ theory. We put soap on it and then we put uh, Neosporin on it. So great. We're done. Band-aid moving on a generation or two ago, a couple of generations that could have killed her. Right. Knock on wood. You know, so, so there's no better time. And the social progress, the social evolution, which seems so slow and two steps forward, one step backward, especially even in America on race, but even globally across the board, we see the rise of authoritarianism and whatnot. These are all difficult, terrible things, but these are the, I would argue the kind of uh, the growing pains or even the contractions of a new era waiting to be born as opposed to the kind of spasms of a dying species. And I think that's what separates me out from a bunch of folks. And we we can go there or not, but I think that's the big difference. It's it's kind of interesting. Like I think that this incapacity to think about the future in in positive ways impacts, of course, politics in a in a very deep way. And uh, I was reading a book by a, a French political scientist called Pierre Saint Vallon. He talks about negative politics. He said mm-hmm. he called it le politique de l'empêchement. You know, like it's the politics of impeding stuff. In other words, nobody presents a positive vision of the future. The only thing that is, let's prevent climate change. Let's prevent the encroachment of the government in the economic thing. Let's prevent the loss of thing. Like what's happening in Israel now. Let's prevent the government taking over the the judiciary. But nobody is presenting a positive view for the future. And that's sort of a massive change in the way politics is structured that really happened in the last in the last 30 years you know take yeah. europe for example europe in the 1980s was this all these dreams about the euro and the eurozone and the and now it's all about preventing bad stuff from happening yeah again let's go back to the hardware of the homo sapien you know we are we, so we have loss aversion right we're biased yeah. more towards losing than we are towards gaining right and there's a whole anti-death impulse and a bunch of other stuff embedded in that, which we could spend hours on, but we won't. And so, you know, they do all these study after study. Would you rather get a dollar now or $2? You know, like whenever they do it, people are always like, I don't want to lose the dollar. Even I get $5 in the future. I don't want to lose a dollar right now. So you're right. There is this kind of negative politics as opposed to positive, because remember to get to the point where you and I could be speaking over this thing called the internet using all this technology we had to just get here. We had to survive. What was more important was that we avoided the bad things as opposed to finding the good things that would allow us to flourish, right? right? I think as a species, as we've moved from a point where it was always death around every corner, we probably turned that corner maybe eight to 10,000 years ago. And in some parts of the world, we haven't even turned that corner. But in general, we started turning the corner on that. We had, as you know, the kind of advent in that last intertidal from hunter-gatherer to um, the agricultural revolution, that we start to see the invention of religion and gods right. and, and monotheism, right? Because we have to kind of create these, these new ways of thinking, these, these new mindsets to help us through this. And then we see the rise, and I'll only speak of my tradition of Judaism, where there are a combination of things that you shouldn't do and things that you should do, right? Kind of the rise of positive politics, if you will, of positive right. living, of positive flourishing. 
positive view of society, like a Judaism, positive view, a normative yeah. positive view of the society that we want. To me, the messianic era or moment has speaking for myself and yeah. not for anybody else has always been this is what we want to move towards not just what we want to move away from that negative politics i think this has been one of the greatest gifts that judaism has given the world is that normative positive view right but to your point we are stuck in in a moment of negation because in an intertidal moment again in this kind of societal civilizational planetary fight or flight stance that we're in right now it's the things we just don't want to lose. We're just right. looking for the lifeboat. We're not looking for the land of milk and honey. We're looking for the life jackets and yeah. we're going to grab the jacket. You know, Buckminster Fuller has this great quote that I'm going to uh, paraphrase. He goes, look, if you're in a shipwreck and you find yourself near a floating piano top and you grab onto the piano top and you survive, that's amazing. It doesn't mean you should design all life jackets and lifeboats like a piano top, right? <laughs> And so we're in this moment where we're grasping for things for these kind of piano tops, which is understandable, but it's not the way you want to design a society. It's so interesting that you talk about the Exodus story because, I mean, the desert is by definition the intertidal moment. I mean, it's yep. a desert. There's nothing there. There's not the new yep. and not the old. And there you have the people of Israel, the Israelites, that are all the time cantankerous and complaining about the things they lost, you know, and there is Moses saying, yeah, but I'm going to show you the type of society we can build and the plans to the future. And the story of the Exodus, in a way, is a battle between these two ways of looking at the reality in which you are. I've said this, but not on a podcast or any recorded medium, but let's be totally clear, like long past the book, the underlying kind of mindset, the theory is of course greatly influenced by the Exodus story, as is most uh, major kind of social evolutionary theory, I would argue, of kind of moving, how to move between paradigms successfully. We did have to spend 40 years in the desert and like, you know, it was it was traumatic too, in a way. But all births are traumatic. Look, right. it was successful because you and I are talking to each other thousands right. of years later. Whether and we're not... still practicing the religion that Look, Moses gave us back then. Yeah, Mitzrayim, the narrow place, the birth canal. Have you ever, you know, we have three yeah. kids. I haven't experienced it, but I've seen it up close. Going from an environment where everything seems fine and you're in bliss and in the womb going through that narrow place of painful contractions to a bright light is not fun. Um, but if it's done with intention, not to push the metaphor too far, then you have something very interesting. Then you birth into a new moment. That's where we are right now. We Jews, I'll speak for myself, are really good at this. We know how yeah. to do this. We've consistently done this, right? From the destruction of the second temple to diaspora, through the Shoah to now, like we we understand how to move successfully, even if it doesn't seem so at first, even if there's 40 years into new yeah. eras and, and adapt. So we, we talked about Homo sapiens in general, and now we're talking a little bit about Ari in particular. You you mentioned a little bit about the impact of the Exodus story and your thinking. Any other influences that you got either from Jewish tradition or your upbringing in general that brought you to think about the future differently? 
Yeah, hundred percent. Look, my father was born in 1922 in a small town in called Baranovich in Poland, now in Belarus. Mm-hmm. And as a 17, 18 year old, he ended up basically losing most of his family and joining, you know, escaping the ghetto and joining the Jewish underground and be, you know, rising up to becoming a commander uh, with the Jewish resistance in the forests of Poland. And then, you know, Nazi hunting after the war, and then eventually making his way across Cuba, through Cuba, through the revolution to Mexico, where he met my mother. My mother was who was an, who was an artist. Um, and they've both since passed away. Uh, she was trained by Buckminster Fuller, which was an, you know, a futurist from the kind of 60s and 70s. Who, he was always asking, you know, what if, what if we could do this to make the world a better place? And, and my dad's story greatly influenced me, not because he was necessarily a futurist in the way that my mom was, but because he took history into account. He took human right. nature into account. And look, he always, he always said the greatest revenge against Hitler wasn't killing more Nazis. It was having children and grandchildren and showing that we would keep going through this moment. And so as a futurist, I'm greatly influenced by both of my parents, you know, ontologically in terms of how they think about truth and, you know, epistemologically, how they think about knowledge, but also just in many ways because of an underlying ethos of hope and awe, right? We used to walk around the block in the Bay Area where I was raised. And after my father had seen so much death and destruction, we would always stop underneath this giant walnut tree, five stories high with a canopy, you know, 100 plus feet across. And he'd always kind of stand in awe of it at this, at this such a simple, but not simple. And he would say, I can't believe this exists. I can't believe God brought this forth. So after seeing all of that, choosing to have a sense of awe and hope at the majesty of the world gave me the ability as a futurist not to, to see all the negative stuff. I see the headlines. I'm not, I'm not blind to them, yeah. but then to see how much we've done and how much more there is for us to do and then focus not on the negative politics, but what are the normative positive politics that we can undertake to bring about the world that we want to leave for, that we want to live yeah. in as much as we can and for our kids for generations to come. That's our job. Maybe there's also something in the way we conceive the social contract today that is also problematic, meaning uh, since the enlightenment that, you know, we're all in favor of it, it's a great thing, the enlightenment, but it did create something that is a little tricky, which is the social contract as a covenant between the people living in a particular time, in a particular place. Uh, And that in a way creates also a tyranny of the present, whereas the Jewish covenant, I mean, it says in the Torah, not just with you are making this covenant, but with those that are not yet born. And so, in other words, we, we seem to have moved from a covenant between generations to a covenant of the present. Even now, we make all this spiritual dimension to it, oh, being present in the moment, being this, which is totally fine, but we kind of lost that thing as the present as a contract between past and future, the social covenant as a contract between generations. Look, 100%. Look, no, no politician or no executive director for that matter, anyone with a board mm-hmm. ever got reelected or re-upped with their contract by making big investments in which the current living 
citizenry or population would not benefit from those investments in their own lifetime, right? So you look at what kind of politicians will do. No one want to. No one wants to invest in the bridge that will take. 10 years to build and will last 80 years right. because people say, Oh, all I did was oh, I just got traffic. Now is that on the politicians or is that on the citizenry? I would argue it's the citizenry. And that's right. why I wrote the book. And that's why I do the work that I do. Cause we often point to our leaders and say, well, they're not doing it, but it's really about us. It's funny when I was younger and you know, my twenties, I didn't, you know, I went through Hillel and I wasn't, we didn't belong to a synagogue. My main reason for not wanting to join a synagogue was, well, they're always calling me for, you know, the synagogue always needs a new roof. And they're always calling me for the building fund. And like, I don't, I don't care about that. Like I need right. programming right now. And now I'm in my late forties with three kids. And I love the phone calls about the new roof, about right. <laughs> the building fund. And so part of it is obviously a maturation process on my own part, but is is us having to tell that story more and more to ourselves, be it within the faith, within the community, or to the world at large, because you are correct, we've become temporally biased in the social contract. Again, I think this goes back to this kind of intertitleness of like, I want to get what I want to get right now, even if it comes at the expense of the future, which is very it, at odds with us. Yeah. You you called it, I mean, last time we spoke, you called it, you called it temporal narcissism. Temporal, I call it temporal narcissism, which is a little bit of narcissism and using so many big words, but temporal narcissism. I am narcissistic, a narcissist staring in the mirror, but about my own time, about my own moment, right? Which is just an unbelievably narcissistic and selfish way of living because really what you're doing And it's amazing where, you know, we're in this kind of anti-colonial moment, which is great in so many ways, but so much of our activities on the left and the right, not to be political uh, or even beyond the political, we, we are colonizing the future. We are yeah. taking from the future things that they will need, but we don't think about it that way. I mean, look, it's difficult. I mean, we were talking about this before we started. I'm hosting a new TV show for PBS called A Brief History of the Future, where I'm showing what these positive visions of tomorrow could look like and who's working on them right now. This will be on PBS in 2024. And I'm flying to Spain tomorrow. There's a footprint there. And so it's not, just to be clear, it's not, it's not binary. It's very difficult, but that's the moment. That's what we're stuck in right now. So give us a glimpse of some of the positive views about the future that exist. I mean, the, the war in the 1990s, back in the, there were these cyber utopians that imagined that the internet would be amazing for democracy. And, and that seemed to obviously go by the wayside. But what is an example of a positive vision of the future that is not like flying cars and like, you know, whatever, like something that is near, but it still can help us think about it in a more concrete way? That's great. That's the show. I mean, so you 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 already kind of got at the underlying antithesis of this show in some ways, which are the things that we should be most excited about aren't just the technology, isn't the monorails or the jetpacks, because that's a kind of a Silicon Valley, almost capitalistic, and I'm 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 a capitalist, but a capitalistic way of thinking about tomorrow, all the things that we can buy or fly in or whatnot, all super cool, will be very important, especially around kind of disease and agriculture. And I'm going to just use one example because it's kind of the, in some ways like the most far out example, but I love it is so for the show, we're going to be meeting with a bunch of people who are working on prison abolition, right? Shutting down 99% of the prisons. Now, 
if I said, we're going to do this today, you'd be like, that's crazy. Like we're not, we can't, we can't just let people who have committed these crimes that back out on the street. What I'm excited about is the folks that are working on prison abolition, not hundred percent of the prisons, it'd be like 98, 99% of them, because what it means to rebuild a society where the incarceration levels go down because people have meaning and purpose and access to mental health and education that's an exciting future for me. Don't get me wrong. There are still going to be folks out there who should not be a part of society. But if we start to look at, let's say, the cost of incarceration for 100 young Black men from one block in Brooklyn, we might be spending $20 million a year incarcerating them upstate. Imagine the $20 million put into rethinking education, mental health services, jobs, job training in that same neighborhood that they're from. That's a lot of money. So part of what the futures that we're excited about are just baseline rethinking of how we got to some of these problems in the first place without saying this one's wrong, this one's right, but just saying, this is how we got here. Now, how do we move forward into a world we want? Because the world that I want for my great, great and great kids isn't just one of regenerative agriculture and vertical farms and hyperloops. That's part of it. But part of it is a one where they exist in a society where a vast majority of the people feel safe, they feel seen, they feel heard, and they have meaning and purpose in their life. Not just, you know, those of us who live in Westchester County, but literally nationally at a much deeper and even global level. Some may say that's a messianic moment. Some may say that's decades, if not a century or two from here. Those are the kind of positive futures that I get very excited about. Interesting. And um, how do you sort of walk back from that? In other words, so you have a positive future for your great-grandchildren. Now, what do you do today about it? So in futuring parlance, we call that backcasting, right? Yeah. So, you know, you know, forecasting going forward, yeah. backcasting is you start with a positive vision and you start walking it back. And what you do when you, when, when you do that is you say, okay, what has to be true for that to happen? And you start right. that in the far off future and you keep walking it back, right? For instance, now I would argue, let's say on, on prison abolition, that a lot of the policies that are happening around criminal justice tend to be kind of short-termistic, right? How do we get people off the streets? And and, 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 and a lot of things around police brutality, those are things that have to be dealt with right now. But in the absence, and I'm going to, you'll see how these kind of circle back in on themselves. In the absence of a kind of a deeply held positive vision of what you want, it becomes very difficult to even make the most minute first step forward towards it. The first thing you do is you have to articulate a vision of the world that you want to see, no matter how perfect or imperfect it is. Uh, But look, I'm a protopian, which means I don't believe in utopia. I just believe in better tomorrows. And so without that vision, though, there can be no even first step. That is your first step is figuring out what you want that world to look like. So let's let's do a little exercise here. Yeah. Like let's let's use some free consulting from one of the top experts on the on the issue. Let's say I have a positive view for say Jewish education in North America, right? I'm saying I want a situation where each and every Jew in this country and in the world, but let's start with this country, finds meaning, comfort, and purpose in their Jewish tradition. That's my vision. How would you start backcasting from that to today? 
so the, we'll we'll do it two ways. First, we'll start in the in the very near term, which is we would take that vision that you put out, but go even much deeper. So what what we would do if we were doing this as a as a deeper exercise, we'd say, yeah. okay, we're going to develop a couple of personas, a couple of different versions. It's a teenager, it's a young adult, it's a state, whatever it is, a couple of different mm-hmm. people, and we're going to talk about how this vision would manifest in their daily life, whatever whatever that means. However, they're going to access it. So that that's one one part of the step. But then we would step back using that and say, let's take your vision and just deepen it much more, right? So the question I'll ask back to you, Anderson, is so explain to me, like, what would that look like for a family of four to have right. that reality around them? You'll it, tell me. Yeah. So for example, uh, one of the things is their universe of association is Jewish. In other words, you know, something happened to them, they can say, oh, but wait a second, Jewish tradition tells us this and that, they have a difficult decision to make as a family. They can find inspiration in their in the tradition. Or, for example, their family life gets dramatically improved and it's much more harmonious, much more meaningful because they use normative Jewish practice that are designed precisely to do that, like Shabbat dinner, for example. You got to my next question, which is within that, we have to also start to question. This is a, it's a, it's, we're going we're to go very deep, very fast. What is the purpose of Judaism? Right. Because if we see the purpose of it as a technology to allow for us to kind of transcend our base hardwiring and live with a deeper sense of connection and purpose, then something really interesting starts to happen because then even how we think about that underlying education and knowledge and wisdom and how it comes about, putting aside the technology about how we would deliver it. And we start to think, why would people need this tradition over any other tradition? Why? Why? I mean, I don't, I don't think they do. I think I think they can yeah. find that in any tradition. I think that there is a matter of let's call it historical economy. Like we already have it. It's already here. And there's been four thousand years of trial and error in developing Judaism. We shouldn't throw it away. I mean, we continue to develop it. So that's. I'm not saying it's better than you know, Christianity or, or any, or any other tradition is just ours. And I think it works. So, and I think it can do what you say, if you really study it, if you really live it, it can give your life a deeper sense of meaning and purpose and transcendence and, 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 and it might make your life better and it can make society better. So do I need that? Do I need any other? Maybe. There were scientists and technologists at Kodak in the 70s and 80s who came to the CEO and said, hey, we have this idea, the digital camera. We could literally put photos without the need for any film right onto this onto this disc. And the CEO of the executive committee at Kodak basically said, there's no way we're going to do that because we actually make all of our money on the film, on the film and the right. chemicals for the film. So this is actually going to destroy our, our business. What business were they in? Were, in? were they in the film chemical business or were they in the memories business? In the memories, right. So what we have to ask ourselves is what business are we in? And I would say we are in the business. I, I'll ask myself, I'll answer this and you'll answer this. Yeah. For me, it's, it's, it's human flourishing. It's the opposite of the negative. It is human flourishing and what it looks like. For thousands of years, we've been working on that and we've had some hiccups and cul-de-sacs and there's misogyny and all those other things. But Net, net, it's human flourishing. Yeah. And so when we go back to your earlier vision, humans want to flourish. And the question becomes, how do we do two things at once? Both provide for the inner life 
of someone who is Jewish or studying to your vision, but also at the same time, provide for outer works, right? Mm -hmm. Between Torah and work and study and service, because the uh, increase in service that allows more people to flourish besides ourselves, I would argue, makes it for the next generation that much easier for them to flourish. If it sounds like I'm talking about like a Lubavitch business model, I am. Not because I believe in it, not because I'm in it, but this is what constant innovation looks like, right? Right. I mean, this is what they do in Japan, right? They're constantly innovating their processes to make them more efficient, to make them more better. I'll say for Toyota, it's to get more cars off the assembly line that are safer, better, and faster. That's how they view it. So that constant improvement, I would argue, is what we as a faith want to do to society writ large, as well as ourselves at the individual and organizational level, So then if we lay that out, for instance, as a vision, then it starts being, what do we need to start doing and developing that will meet people where they are right now who did not come up through yeshivas? If it's a business plan, it's going to be stuck within this enlightenment model that you talked about, right? Right. Which is fine. But in some ways, as we've seen, is no longer fully working because part Correct. of the enlightenment model was breaking down complex system in you know atomization of their individual parts to understand them. That works because that gave penicillin, so I could you know clear up a strep throat a couple of years yeah. ago. It doesn't work in questions of meaning, purpose, and complexity, which is what this moment is. What business are we in? What business is Judaism in? It's not the chemicals business, right? No. Using the Kodak model. It's, it, as you were saying, it's human flourishing, it's transcendence, it's social improvement. I mean, it's all these kind of things. It's, it's living with purpose and meaning, improving the world, all that stuff. So you that, don't like it. No, it's not that I don't like it, but it's, you know, for, all, for, for any of the folks listening from the Jewish philanthropic world, which I've been involved in for 20 years, that's usually not in the first couple of pages of the annual report, right? No, that's- of course. Let me flip yeah, it, right? Positive. I'm saying the vision of the future in terms of Judaism, it's always going to be a little bit flu. It's always going to be a little bit blurred because like, you know, we're talking about things that are not easily defined, human flourishing. So what is human flourishing and transcendence and what is transcendence? But I can leave that a little bit vague and say, whatever meaning you want to take from Judaism, one thing is sure, you need to know Judaism. So I can say that the first step I need to take is to start educating people much more aggressively about, you know, giving people the knowledge, the tools, so that their world of associations become Jewish, that they're culturally literate in the Jewish language. Not not in the Jewish language as in Hebrew, I mean in the the Jewish cultural language, yeah. My, My son is learning how to code. So you're starting at the most basic levels of code and then he builds up from there, right? You start with C plus, you make your way up to Python and you go from there. Our system of Jewish education is broken in this country. I can speak from experience. The non-Orthodox world, which is one that I inhabit, in many ways is focused on getting people to the bar and bar mitzvah. And then maybe if you're lucky, they stick around for a while and they come back after they have kids. That's it. And then we have like adult education. Great. That does not sound like a system built around what you're talking about, which is right. that level of flourishing as opposed to just learning the holidays. And again, I'm not knocking any movement necessarily or anything, anyone specifically, but what you are talking about would require a top to bottom rethink of the model of how and why we educate. It would right. it would require the Hebrews, everything to change. And that's what the, that's what the back cast is going to call out. I worked several years ago with the world's, one of the world's largest automobile companies. 
And when I first came to them, they're like, oh, you're the futurist. We want to, we want to triple what we do right now because that's the future for us is growth. Yeah. And so it took a while, but we finally got them to the point where they were thinking less about cars because that was the kind of legacy business model was cars. And we got them to think about them not being in the car business, but in the mobility business. Right. Which meant autonomous electric vehicles that you didn't own, but people where it was like on a Netflix plane, it would come and pick you up and take you to the doctor's office. So it was no longer about selling that individual widget, but it was about a service. Right. And not to get too, you know, business school on you or on us or on the reader listeners, but it's like, what service are we providing? Are we in the car business or are we in the mobility business? Right. right. Are we in the chemicals business? Or are we in the memories business? And so every big normative vision, that one that you just laid out on education, requires us to ask, what's yeah. the business? Because there's a business plan and there's a business model and there's a complete rethink of what you're actually in. So are you in the business of, and this is a crass, overused, uh, cliche, trite way of saying it, are we in the business of just more Jewish babies, more people doing Shabbat, more people supporting Israel? Maybe. Nothing necessarily wrong with that. And or are we in the business of human flourishing? Right. And maybe the and or is important when you deal with a pluralistic community, with a diverse community, because one of the things that where sometimes the debate gets stuck is that you can't agree on the long term vision because some will tell you, well, for me, the vision is everybody's doing mitzvot and doing God's will and somebody's yeah. secular. I say, well, that for me is human flourishing, you know, now. But maybe on the first step, which is we need to reform Jewish education, we can all agree. So is there room for alternative visions of the future and yet agreement in the short term? A hundred percent. In the book, I talk about the difference between future thinking and futures with an S thinking. And you can have within a futures context, multiple futures as long as it's through a telos, like an ultimate aim or goal that is value aligned and people can agree on. I wanted to just shift back to the Jeff and conference of which we're going to be enormously honored to have you as a speaker. And of course, I would say you're suspending your the filming of your uh, TV show. Yes. Of your show. Yeah. So I feel truly honored. But, but one of the questions we're going to be asking at the conference is how do you identify what's possible today that wasn't possible in the past? Meaning we just say all the things that we used to do that we don't do anymore. And we're lamenting that. Okay. But besides the jetpacks and the flying cars and the very long-term thing, how do you have a technique that helps you identify the possible today or the new opportunities that opened up that you haven't realized? How do you find, you know, if you lived in the 15th century, how do you find that little guy in Germany who's developing the printing press? Well, so in the 15th, it would have been very difficult to find Gutenberg in that way. Yeah, maybe it's not a good example. But now now in the 2020s, the way we do it, the way the futurists do it, and I'll do it in 30 seconds, is we look for positive signals of change. We look for those grass shoots, those not just trends, not just cool little things, but we look for places where things are popping up. Remember, before there was Hillel, there was some very small thing happening before there was moisture house. There was very, so we look for those things and we have to be open to them, which means we don't immediately attack them because they're different. 
<laughs> we don't just flood them with white blood cells because it looks like it's going to attack the system, but we observe them and say, what here can scale? Doesn't necessarily mean millions of it, but like, how can we play with this? And in an evolutionary perspective, how might this help us towards our end goal, right? If we think about right. Darwin's finches, the end goal was just to flourish in a bounded ecosystem. Right. We have to ask ourselves, what is our larger end goal and how might these things help us? The easiest, simple way of saying this is we have to have an open mind to what's out there, but that can only happen if we're open to evolving towards a greater right. purpose. So it, it is as though you're Darwin and you know that mutations may make you more adaptable. So your mindset changes and you're consciously looking for those early mutations and try to identify which ones are going to help you in the future. Is that a good analogy? And with an understanding that you don't have to get rid of everything that brought you here, that sometimes your, your ancestors were right about a few things. Sometimes your parents were right about, you know, when you're leaving the house at two in the afternoon and your mom says to you, you know, honey, take a jacket. It's raining in the town 15 miles away. Instead of you saying, looking out and saying, well, there's no rain coming. Why do I need to do it? Because your mom may know that what's raining 20 miles away may eventually hit the town that you're at. Yeah. So <laughs> it means looking for the mutations, but also being open to the wisdom of your ancestors and balancing those two. That's a secret. You mentioned, and as a final thought, you mentioned that you're involved with the world of Jewish philanthropy. Do you have any particular word of wisdom or advice for for funders, for folks that are doing philanthropy in this day and age? The, the one sentence is find and fund the things, the people, the opportunities that provide hope, that build light in a dark world, that give people a sense of the awe of this universe that we're in, because that at a very fundamental level is A, what we have to just do, that's our calling, and B, you get more people attracted to the light than to the dark. And so when you focus on those, that will get us, I think, the world that we want, the world to come. And that's an amazing way to close. Thank you, Ari, so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much to Ari Wallach. You can learn more about his important work at longpath.org. Jeff and members can hear him speak at the Jeff and Conference in Phoenix, Arizona on March 19th. And keep an eye out for his upcoming television show in 2024. Thank you so much for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback and also guest ideas, breaking philanthropic news, whatever you want to send us. Please write to us at communications at jfunders.org. Keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at jfunders. You can also follow me on Twitter at your own risk at at Spokoini. I leave you now with a quote of the late Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, who said, at the heart of Judaism is a belief so fundamental to Western civilization that we take it for granted. Yet, it is anything but self-evident. It has been challenged many times, rarely more so than today. It is the belief in human freedom. We are what we choose to be. Society is what we choose to make it. 
the future is open, there is nothing inevitable in the affairs of humankind. So keep building a better future, keep giving, and see you next time on What Gives.